written to this church about some of the problems that they were having and an incestuous situation that they had and then over the last couple weeks kind of addressing this situation where they're ripping each other off and suing each other and just a real mess there in the church. And now as we come to the verses that we're going to look at today, he gives a list of, well, 10 ways to ruin your life in a lot of ways, 10 different areas of sin that he says will exclude you from the kingdom of God. And so, as we begin reading in verse 9, he says, Do you not know? He uses that expression several times prior to this in chapter 6 and a few times after that. He's going, I can't believe you guys don't get this. Don't you know that the unrighteous, people who live their lives apart from God's standards, will not inherit the kingdom of God? That is, the kingdom of God is being where God is ruling. The kingdom of God is something that we are supposed to experience here on the earth as we submit ourselves to the rule of God, but it's also something that we look forward to in going to heaven, and primarily that's his emphasis here probably because the whole idea of inheriting it is seeing it as something in the future. But he says, don't be deceived. Don't let anybody fool you. Now, that tells us right away that this is something to which we could be susceptible to being fooled, that there are people who are wrong. They have certain ideas about what he's going to discuss, and and they're wrong. They're fooling themselves, and he says, so don't be. Don't be deceived. And as he goes on to say, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. A list of 10 categories of behavior that are not appropriate for a life where Jesus Christ is the king. And therefore, behavior and activity and lifestyle that excludes you from experiencing his working in your life now and if allowed to run rampant could be involved in the life of someone who's excluded from the presence of God in the future. Now, it's hard to do a 10-point sermon. The third service would never get in here because I mean, I went a half hour over first service, and I was just getting warmed up. So, But let me go through really quickly and just clarify these terms, and let's talk about it a little bit. And if you want the long version, you can get the tape from first service. Um, First of all, fornicators. That's uh, the Greek word there is pornos. It refers to any kind of activity, primarily in in the sexual area that is outside the realm of the categories that God has designed, the order that he has designed. So any sort of sexual behavior that's, that's wrong, according to what God would say, would fall into this category. It's why pornography, graphic pornos, is what it is. It's the idea of something that's a violation of God's standards, okay? Now, Again, the next term 
after fornicators is idolaters. An idolater is somebody who worships an icon, someone who looks at a representation of something and worships that. As the Bible says a lot of times, worshiping the the created thing rather than the creator. There are things that God has made, and they are pictures to show us something about him, but instead of worshiping him, we worship those things that he made. It's idolatry is any time we put our attention on something that's just a thing and, and uh, devote our attention to that. It's the feeling that you get if you give someone a present and instead of hugging you, they just keep kissing the present. <laughs> idolatry. Adulterers. Adultery is violating the marital vows. Any, any kind of sexual behavior that would cause you to go back on what you promise when you marry someone. So for a married person to be having physical relationships with someone other than their spouse, or for anyone to go have physical relations with someone who's committed to someone else is all adultery. The, word, the first word there for homosexuals in the King James, I think, calls it effeminate. People have argued over what it's referring to because the word literally just is a word that meant soft or luxurious. And so it could be translated a few different ways, but in those days, most of them knew what it meant. It was a euphemism for homosexual activity. It'd be kind of like we have terms, and, and I think... Historically, homosexuals have been associated often with something soft and fluffy and puffy kind of a thing, and it would be kind of like the sometimes our expression of, I think he seems a little light in the loafers. It would be sort of this kind of a, sorry, maybe you haven't heard that. <laughs> but it, it's, it's a euphemism probably for, for homosexuality. But then to make it clear, the next term there that is translated sodomites in our edition, just to delineate it from the first word, is really just the clear word for homosexuality, uh, literally a man lying with a man. And so he's making that clear. That's something that, that he has forbidden. Thieves, in verse 10, somebody who takes something that's not theirs. Covetous, somebody who wants more and more. They just can't get enough. Another word in our Modern vocabulary for covetous is shopping. (laughs) Drunkards, people who drink enough to get under the influence of it, who drink too much. Revilers. A reviler is somebody who's just constantly critical. We have a capacity to say something, oh, that's not right, but when you overdo it and, and you just are constantly telling everyone that they're wrong... That's reviling. Extortioners, people who would use means other than legitimate means to try to attain things that they want. They would cheat other people. They would twist people's arms in order to get what they want. It's that desire for things that will lead you to do whatever you need to do in order to get them. So all of those categories, he says, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Now, one thing I want to point out is that Quite often, we quote this passage in order to attack certain categories of people. I've heard, I'd like to have a dollar for every time I've heard someone say, homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah, but shoppers? Um, You know, people who take something that isn't theirs? Let's, Let's be fair here. 
Paul is an equal opportunity offender. And if you can look at that list and just go, yeah, all those people, instead he's going, look, don't be fooled. We're all those kinds of people, as we'll see a little bit later, in one way or another. So how does he lump all these things together? How do you put a reviler with an adulterer? A, a pornographer with a, you know, with a thief and all these sorts of things. Well, in a nutshell, what all of these behaviors that he's describing have in common is they take something that God has legitimately created and designed to satisfy a person, and they go overboard with them. They take them too far. They overdose on them in some way. God has designed us in a really complex way, but he's designed us with the capacity for abuse when we take something that he makes and we overdo it. I mean, one way that you can talk about doing it that doesn't make people too embarrassed probably is to think about food and the way food is. And go back to primitive days, and what would happen is people have a legitimate desire because they're hungry. Their body is actually depleted of nutrients, and if they don't eat something, they'll die. They'll starve. And so what you do is pretty soon that hunger would be enough that you'd go, I've got to go get something to eat. And you can eat little things, little bugs and things like that, but eventually you realize what'll be satisfying is if I can find a good-sized animal to eat. The problem is that animal wants to eat too. And so there's this huge adrenaline rush as the hunter and the hunted are out there having their contest and ultimately you're hungry enough and that drive and that adrenaline and the excitement of the chase allows you to consummate that hunt and to satisfy that hunger and then boy you feel good for a while and you're satisfied and you can finally rest and you go back to your cave. Eventually, though, there's going to be a need for more of that. Now, that is all well and good, and it worked really well. But something happened along the way where grocery stores and restaurants were created. And right now, it doesn't take much adrenaline to get something to eat. <laughs> and as a result, we don't wait till we're hungry to eat. We just wait until we see the next fast food place that we like. And we don't have to think about, oh, man, I'm going to have to get myself psyched up and pumped up, and I'm going to really go for it so I can get something to eat. It's like you just go in and open up the menu, and there's all these choices. And most of them aren't good for you. And you really don't burn a lot of calories trying to get your food. In fact, if you have to park too far from the restaurant, so you have to walk all the way up there. You feel like a caveman. You know, and you're like, oh man, why don't they have valets at this place? <laughs> but God created certain kinds of foods to be stimulants of appetite also. You know, sugar is one of those. Honey, for instance. You take honey and, man, it's good stuff. They used to use it, put a little dab of honey on a baby's mouth before the baby would nurse to kind of get their appetite going, kind of like chips and salsa before a good meal. <laughs> but, you know, ultimately you didn't overdose on honey because you get stung getting honey. It was a pretty rare and valuable thing. You'd stick the stick in, you'd just get a little, eat a little honey, and hey, we're off. Now I'm ready to hunt. I have that quick burst of energy that's necessary for me to go get the real meal. 
But in our society today, there's so much sugar available and that quick high, that quick burst of energy that usually that's what we want to eat. Either, you know, and you might get sick of honey, so we eat things like pastas and breads and all sorts of other simple carbohydrates that just turn into sugar as soon as it gets in our body. Now, God created within our bodies the capacity to react to a quick burst of energy from sugar, and it was for a purpose. But then when you live constantly gorging yourself with that, you're too tired to go hunt for anything. You just, boom, you, you fall, and, and you ultimately kill yourself. Now, that's true with everything else that God has created as well, in a lot of the same ways. In our society today, we live in such an overcharged sexual environment, for instance. Sexuality is being pushed everywhere. Pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry, at least conservative estimates, $12 billion a year spent on pictures that are desired to stimulate. Now, within our bodies, we have a capacity to have, there are things in our body that create a drug that actually drug us. And some of those are stimulated by visual stimuli. And if, it, if God hadn't created us that way, Adam and Eve would have been created. They would have met each other, and she would have gone shopping, he would have gone fishing. That would have been the end of it. But there's something inside us that even when you're really young, all of a sudden you have this feeling like, whoa, where did that come from? And that's something that God placed within you to be interested in something that would be necessary not only for your satisfaction in life, but for the propagation of the species as well. But the, God's design was for that to be stimulated within you, to cause you to comb your hair, clean up your act a little bit, and, and connect with a person of the opposite sex, and then to enjoy that life that you have, a life of peace and happiness and fulfillment. But what society tells us is, no, you've got to have more and more and more. And that initial adrenaline rush, that, that excretion of those endorphins, that caused you to not know the difference between fear and excitement and attraction and stress and headache and all. And it's like, ah. Then society goes, oh, you can have that all the time. You don't want that all the time. See, what God has designed is for that to make us interested in each other and then to discover a relationship that you can live with for life. But we have become addicted as a society to all sorts of things to that adrenaline rush, to that initial feeling. But the problem is, like any addiction, and by the way, people, when we talk about alcoholism or drug addiction or pornography or all sorts of behavior addictions, it's all the same basic thing. And people can argue, well, is that a disease or is it a sin? Or It's both. We are medicating ourselves. Fascinating studies have been done. There's a woman, Dr. Judith Reisman, who's the foremost expert on the effects of pornography on society. And she has demonstrated that seeing certain visual images causes the release of of medication inside your body. Now, there are endogenous medications and there are exogenous medications 
The exo comes from outside. The endo is generated from within. But she has shown that physiologically there's a change in your brain when you look at an erotic image, and it actually is the same thing as injecting a drug into someone in terms of the effect that it has on your body. And like any other drug, it can become addictive. However, it takes more and deeper and greater doses in order to continue to give you that same rush, that same excitement, that same level. And what our society is telling us to do is, hey, that's where you need to live all the time at that peak. And even when we talk to people about marriage, we pretend like it's always going to feel like this. It's always going to be like this. And so everyone acts like, yeah, that's the way it is. I'm just as excited after 50 years of marriage. When I look at my wife, I am just as excited as the day I first saw her. You know, harmless lying. No, it's really destructive because then somebody gets married and then they're like, "Uh uh-oh, I don't feel the same. I need a fix. So what happens? Either through pornia, either through adultery or something, I've got to get that burst again. I need to feel that injection of stimulation that's going to put me at that level. And so what happens is a society that's absolutely addicted and completely unable to be satisfied, to ever reach what it is that we're all looking for, and that is a state of contentment, a state of, I'm finally here. And, you know, Mick Jagger had it right when he said, I can't get no satisfaction. And he said, but I try and I try and I try and I try, but I can't get no, 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 I can't. And it's true. As long as that's what you're trying to do, another fix, another hurt, you know, another, another burst of energy, another bite of sugar, another taste of whatever that excitement is, living life on that level It can't happen because God has designed us to, yes, to need that burst at the right time in the right way and then to go, oh, this is nice. This is a comfortable place to live. This is a a great place to be. Paul talked about learning to be content wherever he was. He said, man, I have figured out how to, I, I can be abased or I can abound but I've learned to be satisfied by accepting this is where I am and this is a good place. It's something that people, apart from doing things God's way, will never achieve. They'll constantly be looking for more, constantly digging deeper, waiting for that next rush. God has something so much more beautiful the way he's designed life to be lived, but we need to even know what it feels like when we get there so that when we get there, we don't think, Oh, well, now I'm bored. I'm bored? You know, it's, we look at what it is that we really want, and when we see it, we go, no, that's not how it's supposed to feel. It's supposed to be something other than this. Life is always supposed to be this great chase, this great energizing burst. And so we just have to keep looking for deeper and deeper and more stimulus in order to try to meet that standard. It's why somebody who, you know, when you guys are old enough to remember when the best, you know, you'd see like National Geographic or a Sears Roebuck catalog and go, whoa, and, you know, but it doesn't affect you that way anymore. 
It has to get something more and something deeper and something more twisted and something worse because you have to continue to increase feeding that addiction with more and more. And it's an awful trap that Satan lays for us to take what God has given us, something that's good, and then just to overdo it, to addict us to something that will never satisfy us. And that is the nature of all of these categories of sin. They're taking something that's good and going, here, if it's good in that dose, it must be really good in a greater dose. And it doesn't work that way. What happens is we destroy ourselves. We destroy our capacities. And this lady, Judith Reisman, um, who has studied pornography, she has testified before Congress. She's been involved with every presidential government for the last you know, many different presidents that we've had. And she says, everyone is interested. They can't argue with the science. They know what I'm saying is true, but no one will do anything to stop the spread, for instance, of pornography. Why? Because pornography is a huge industry. But not only that, there's also a huge industry in people who counsel people who have problems in these areas. So that's a big industry. And then an industry that's become even more profitable, profitable than the pornography industry is the industry that medicates people in order to help them to try to be able to achieve what they've lost the capacity to achieve because they've drugged themselves so much that now that natural adrenaline doesn't work anymore, and so they need some sort of artificial help in order to make it happen. There's frankly just too much money in ruining people's lives for anyone to stand up and say, this is wrong and we need to put a stop to it. Now again, let's look at all of these things, and every one of them is an overdose of something good. You know, fornication. Again, hey, you're supposed to have that energizing feeling of, oh man, otherwise you'd just stay by yourself and you'd end up where you are. But you overdo this and you'll end up repelling everyone, destroying every relationship that you could ever have and you'll end up with a relationship with paper, a relationship with a computer screen because real people could never satisfy that which you're lacking because you've continued to build up your tolerance to that which is normal and you're absolutely focused on what's abnormal. So taking that and taking it to an extreme, absolutely destructive in terms of this fornication. Idolatry. There's nothing wrong with a picture of something. There's nothing wrong with, with things that are created and they can be enjoyed. It's only when you look at things that are created and you fall in love with the image of it rather than the one who made them and you lose a perspective. You end up hugging and kissing trees instead of looking at trees and loving God. You know, and it, as, he, as he goes on, adultery is something that you go, hey, marriage is a good thing. Yeah, it is. So another one would be really good. And that's what happened historically. Hey, if one wife is good, two must be twice as good. You know, God told Israel, tell your kings not to multiply wives and horses and soldiers. More is not better. We're designed in such a way that one is plenty. 
and finding that person, the right person, and being with them the rest of your life in a, in a loving and comfortable relationship, that's what you're really looking for. That's what everyone really wants. But we adulterate our commitments, and we violate those commitments in order to somehow get another rush of adrenaline. Because we look at our spouse and we go, I remember when I was afraid. I remember when I'd reach out to touch them and my palms were sweaty. And my heart was beating faster, and now it's not. But boy, when I get near this other person, I'm feeling that same, hey, don't buy the lie. Don't do that. Don't adulterate that which has flourished into something beautiful and mature and think you want to start all over again. No, but that's what adultery does. Homosexuality in all of its forms. You know, I'm not going to pick on it, and, and I, I can't even pretend to be an expert on exactly why people go a certain direction and, and indulge in homosexuality, and I know it's a complex issue, and I'm far from being an expert on it, and I don't ever want to be somebody who is harder on one category of sin than another because I don't believe God is, and so uh, it, this isn't, I, I think we've been really guilty of treating homosexuality as if it's in a different category, but it isn't. So what is it really? It's an overdose, again, of something that's really good. We aren't designed just to have relationships with someone of the opposite sex. And a lot of times we make a mistake when we fall in love with someone, we lose all our friends. There's a really important role that girls hanging out with girls provides. There's a really important role that guys hanging out with guys provides. There are certain elements to relationships like that that are really important and really good. There are things that I enjoy doing with my wife that, you know, I don't really enjoy doing with guys, but there are things that I enjoy doing with guys that she, she doesn't really participate in in the same way. Last night, we were scheduled to go to a birthday graduation kind of party for a girl. And then, on the way back from there, we were going to go by in somebody's house and watch the Ultimate Fighting Championship. <laughs> now, I was looking forward to one event a little more than the other one, I'll admit. But and I had really mixed emotions when Anne wasn't feeling good and wasn't able to go, and I had to go to both by myself. And I felt really kind of weird and out of place being at this birthday party with all these decorations and everything that she would have appreciated that I don't appreciate. I mean, they fed me, and that's a good thing. And, but <laughs> ultimately, I ended up gravitating to a table with a bunch of guys, and, you know, it was okay. But I couldn't wait, frankly, to... Let me check here. Yeah, I couldn't, <laughs> you got to know who's in your audience. But yeah, I couldn't wait to get out of there. But while I was there, I, I felt really, you know, I wished Ann had been there with me. But when I got over to my friend's house to watch the UFC, I, I wasn't, it wasn't quite the same. I'm with a bunch of guys. We're acting like guys. And I, you know, as like, when Randy Couture broke this guy's nose and, you know, blood's coming out, I wasn't going, oh, I wish Ann was here to share this with me. <laughs> you know, she would really appreciate this. I, you know, I mean, bless her heart. She sat through many UFCs with me. But it's still, it's one of those things that if I was just watching it with her, with no guys, you'd feel like, oh, man, there's nobody that I can, oh, you know. <laughs> Be, uh, now, 
We're all that way and in, in different areas. But here's what happens, I think, when it comes to same-sex relationships. At somewhere along the line, and I'm not sure how this happens, but perhaps someone is violated in such a way that makes it difficult for them to form a healthy relationship with someone of the opposite sex. Often this is involved when someone either has a really bad role model as a, as a parent of either the same sex or opposite sex parent. Sometimes it happens through being molested or something like that. Sometimes it may happen because of the way that other kids treat you and identify you. And because you're not the greatest athlete, they start calling you derogatory names and things like that, and, and you start to believe it. But for, for some reason, for whatever reason, and I don't understand them all, but there are some people who just fall back into the safety and security of a relationship with someone who's of the same sex. And it's, you know, it's not wrong to have a relationship with someone of the same sex. That's a good thing. But when you take it too far, and when it gets too carried away, and when it dominates a certain element of your life, it can become a destructive thing. And I say this totally out of love. I know people who identify as homosexuals who I, I really love them. I don't know any of them who I really think are happy and fulfilled, who I look at their life, and they have that dream. And in the media, they try to propagate all these long-term committed relationships, but they can try as hard as they want. I look at it, and I just go... I'm so sad because I can just see it's not really working for them, not in the way that God has designed someone to do. And if that offends you, I'm, I'm really sorry. It's, it's been my experience, but it's what God's Word states, that He has an ideal way for relationships to function. And that will never be fulfilled with a bunch of guys watching the UFC or a bunch of girls sitting around poofing up pillows. And we can try to... <laughs> Or by guys poofing up pillows or women fighting in the ultimate. It's just, there's, there are things there that, there are things, women, that your husband cannot satisfy for you. And don't take them shopping with you. Stop asking them which pillow sham they like better or which, it's just, you got girlfriends for that. And, you know, so again, here's something. God has created us to have these great intimate relationships with people of our same sex and to have great fulfilling relationships with a person of the opposite sex. And when that gets out of kilter or out of balance, life just doesn't work the way God really wants it to. And I honestly, I'm not pointing the finger. I am as evil and as bad and as sinful as anyone on this world. So if you're here and there's one of these sins that you're sensitive about, please, I'm not pointing the finger at you at all. But I'm saying for all of us, in some area, every one of us, there are some areas where we could be doing better. Where, we, where God has something more for us and, and we allow ourselves to fall into behavior that though it feeds our addiction, it will never satisfy our heart. And again, continuing in the list, how are we doing on time? Um, thieves. There's nothing wrong with wanting stuff. If you didn't want stuff, you wouldn't go to work. But it's when you take a shortcut and go, I want something and I can get it without working, so I'll take it. 
You're taking something that God has placed within your heart that should cause you to get up in the morning, get out of bed and go work. Instead, it causes you to go take it from someone else. Covetous, again. You want stuff? Fine, there's a way to get it. But to want more and more and to never be satisfied and to always be on the hunt for that next thing that's going to make it for you, ultimately, God's plan for your life is satisfaction. God's plan for your life is contentedness. And I, I heard that song again the other day, um, Cheryl Crow's uh, Soak Up the Sun, where she says, I don't have digital, I don't have diddly squat. It's not having what you want, it's wanting what you got. And there's a lot of wisdom there. How about look what you have and go, you know what? I'm blessed. I'm okay right now. I'm good. I don't need to keep getting more and more and being covetous. Drunkards. Now, you know, they're, personally, my own conviction is there's nothing wrong with someone if you have the liberty and, and it's something that you feel is good for you to go have a glass of wine with dinner or you know, to drink a beer after work or something. I, that's not something, now I don't do it. And so please, I don't want to argue with anybody about this. So if you feel, no, 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 that's wrong or whatever, that's great. If you feel that way, don't do it. The, let me tell you why I don't do it. Because I've just seen too many people who can't stop at one. And as a result, I've seen so many lives that are devastated by alcoholic drinks that for me, just one doesn't even look good. It just... I look at a drink, and I think of the lives that have been ruined by it. So that's my personal conviction. But at the same time, there's no, you know, the Bible sometimes speaks of alcoholic beverages as having a positive impact. And depending on what your upbringing was and what your experience was, that may be something that's just a, a total blessing to you. For you, that may be fulfillment. Ah, you know, and, and taking a drink or you know, now there's some guys who just have a cigar or whatever, you know. Here's the problem with anything. If you overdo it, it doesn't work. It's going gonna, it's gonna to mess you up. And so definitely to drink to the point of putting you under the influence of something, now you're giving yourself over to an addiction. And something that may for one person may be a positive thing for them, it may be a negative thing for you. Because you can't handle it. Or something that you, it might be okay for you to do it, but it may stumble people that you know when they see you do it. You may have alcohol in your house and you can handle it fine, but now your kids are sneaking it out and they're getting drunk and driving and it makes a mess. So it's where this thing goes wrong is when you get carried away. It's that addiction. It's that feeding of the adrenaline rush that that creates the problem. And being a drunkard is one of the symptoms of that. A reviler. There's nothing wrong with seeing somebody having a string hanging off the back of their shirt and saying, um, you have a string hanging off the back of your shirt. Oh, thanks. But there's something wrong if you're going around looking for people so you can tell them, you know, um, that color doesn't really go with that color. And, you know, um, if you wear a pattern that has lines going that way, for someone who's large like you, it's really not flattering. <laughs> you know, that hairstyle makes your face look even more round than it is. And, and, and at some point, it's like you've gone from making a helpful suggestion to thinking that it's your job to fix everyone around you. 
pastors can get into this. You know, I have to watch it because sometimes as a faithful pastor, I need to point out when we're in the Word, go, you know, there are some churches who do such and such, and, you know, I see that that could be a real issue in light of this Scripture. And so I, I sometimes in order to show the truth, I may have to point out error that someone is, is guilty of. And it's kind of fun after a while. And then you start to, it, it's so easy because people like to hear it. I could take a shot at some well-known movement or church, and, and then people who have been hurt by that movement or church will come up after and go, I'm glad you were really preaching it. Way to go. That's exactly my experience there or whatever. And then I go, hey, cool. I'm going to take more shots. People like it when I take shots at others. And then I could just become, I'm getting up here just saying what's wrong with everyone. You know, there'll be people today who will go, you know, you went through those lists of 10 sins. Preach it, brother. I like it when you go sin. So then I'm like, okay, what sins am I going to do next week to get people all excited? If you get excited about hearing people preach on sin, you don't understand it. You're being deceived. This isn't something to be excited about. Oh, man, I'm glad other people are messed up. This is something, this is about us. Man, take a look in the mirror. But it's so easy to become a reviler, to become a professional critic, to become someone who will just always point out what's wrong with other people. Some people make a living out of that, being a critic. It's not healthy. It's taking something good, the capacity to go, hey, you, know, you might want to pull up your zipper, and, and then turning it into you need to do this, and you need to do that, and you got this wrong, and you're doing this, and, right, and you're like, pretty soon, like every addiction, nobody listens to you. you. You tell them they're wrong, but it's like, you think everything's wrong. So whatever you say is completely discounted, because you overdosed on being a critic a long time ago, and now no one cares anymore, and that's how it works, that addiction, just overdoing something that started out good. And again, extortioners, finally, it's good to want things, but when you can justify doing wrong things in order to get that which you want to have, when you cut corners and when you compromise in order to get what you want, it's an addiction. It's overdoing a good thing. There are some people who just do this with their lives. There are some people who just, they've always got to have a new project, something else. As soon as they accomplish something, they can't even stop and enjoy it. They've got to get on to the next project. Some people don't even finish a project. Some of you know what I'm talking about because you've done it. I have too. It's like the fun thing is buying the tools and the parts. You know, then you get a few things cut up. You know, like we had a work day here and we got a lot done, but there's still a hole in the drywall and there's still a wall over here and we're all looking at it going, oh, yeah, well, when are we going to tear out another wall and build a baptistry or something? You know, we're all, but see, it's okay to want and to want to do. But there's a place for going, you know, let's enjoy this for a while the way it is. Let's be satisfied. Let's demonstrate that. I feel really sorry for people, and believe me, I know about those kind of people because I can tend to be that way, who can just never rest who think that hell is sitting there, you know, who, who think that the most miserable thing in the world is to have nothing to do, to look and there's nothing on my to-do list. Oh, how horrible that would be. I would just feel so much, so meaningless. No, I mean, God wants us sometimes to go, you know what, be still, 
and just know that I'm God. It's okay. Be satisfied. When we overdo that desire, though, to get some things done, and then we start to cut corners and cheat in order to make it happen, we step on people in order to get there, now we've overdosed. Now the adrenaline has driven us to do something destructive. So that's it. That's the way he lays it out, overdoing it. That's not what heaven's about. That's not, now, let's make it clear. None of these sins will send you to heaven. Don't talk like, oh, if you do this, you can't go to heaven. That's not his point. He's going, this isn't what heaven is like. And the lives of people who are going to heaven don't look like this. The only thing that will send you to heaven is, to hell is rejecting Jesus Christ. The only thing that will send you to heaven is being saved by him because you receive him as your Savior. And so Paul in the next verse says, and such were some of you. Or another way of putting that is, you guys were some of these things. You've been there. You've, you've lived this yourselves. But you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This is one of those verses that names all three members of the Trinity in one place, which makes it cool. But he says, that was you. You were addicted in different ways to the adrenaline rush. You were overdoing good things that God had given you. But you were washed. He's cleaned you. And you're sanctified, you're set apart, put into the category of those who are in the process of developing into being more like Jesus. You're justified. He looked at you and he declared you righteous based on what Jesus did for you. He has forgiven you. Now, he doesn't say, if you've been washed and sanctified and justified, you'll never struggle with any of these areas again. No, he goes, on the basis of what Jesus Christ did for you when you accepted him, don't you realize you're being fooled? You need to stop living trying to satisfy yourself by overdoing it. And instead, be satisfied with that which God has given you. Be satisfied with the life that he says is this is the way that you should live. Trust him to give you the life that will bring you happiness and joy and fulfillment. Stop trying to make it happen other ways. And as he has saved us, and as he works on us, our lives will start to change if we understand this. And we will start to look more like heaven. And our lives will look much less like they used to look. We won't be those frantic, obsessed people who are trapped trying to overdo everything to get that next burst of energy, that next rush of adrenaline, all of a sudden a peace starts to come in our lives. And he says, that's available for you. Now it's interesting, these words washed, sanctified, justified are in the Greek middle voice. Now English doesn't have a middle voice. We have active and passive voice. An active voice is you're doing the action. I hit the ball. That's active. The ball hit me, that's passive. The action happened to me. The middle voice is where you're doing it yourself in some way. You are actively and intimately involved with the action in the middle voice. So he doesn't say you washed yourself, you sanctified yourself, you justified yourself. 
But the idea is, this is what you're participating in. This is your life. Your activity is sharing in what God is doing in your life in such a way that you are presenting yourself to be washed. That you are understanding that you've been set apart because you allowed yourself to be set apart. That you know that you've been justified and so you believe what he says about the fact that you've been declared righteous. Now, that's the bottom line for all of us and all this stuff. It's not here for us to point fingers at others. It's not here for us to walk out with our heads hanging down like, oh, man, I'm, I'm done. I've had it. What he's saying is, listen, God has a better way. The kingdom of God works in a way that you've been lied to. You've been deceived. It's way better than what the world has to offer it doesn't involve overdosing yourself on addictive substances. It involves placing yourself in his hands, receiving his forgiveness, allowing him to wash you, to set you apart, to justify you. And that's where we all come to the foot of the cross and go, God, I'm looking at this and I'm a mess, but I need to be clean. I need you to do that healing work in my life. If you're a Christian, you've already presented yourself to him to do it, but this is something that we need to do every day because addictions are hard to kick, and we need to constantly report back to him, to confess our sins, to repent of our sins, to turn around and do things differently and go, God, I want to I try to do it your way. Maybe you are right now adulterating your marriage. Maybe you're right now in a situation where you're getting that thrill from doing something outside your marriage that reminds you of how it used to feel when you first met your spouse. Hey, that is a drug that you don't need. That's not what God has for you. It will never satisfy you. So come to him for cleansing now. Repent of your sin. Stop it. Realize the devil is injecting you with something that's going to kill you, and you can stop now and he'll cleanse you. Maybe you've allowed your mind to be so polluted by images or by pornography or by, by you know, an obsessive, obsessive shopping or by using people and manipulating them or lying to people and cheating them or whatever. Maybe you've done that so much that you're like, it's too late for me. It's not too late because we can report for washing every day. Every time, it's time for us to repent. It's time for us to realize what we've been addicted to. Let's turn away from it. Let's go cold turkey and allow him to satisfy us. Let's look for those things that he has given us. And you know, at first, you're going to feel antsy, like any addict who's trying to stop what they're doing. You're going to feel, oh, that's not right. But what's coming is an amazing peace. When you're finally back at the point where you're starting to feel like you're clean, where it's God's doing a fresh work in your life. I don't care how rough things are for you right now in your marriage, or I don't care how deeply you've fallen into sin. God wants to clean you up. He wants to heal you. He can give you that satisfaction that you've always wanted and he's always promised. And if you just take that needle out of your arm, if you'll just stop trying to satisfy your life with, with spoonfuls of sugar... And you'll just let him do that work. That's the kingdom of heaven. 
and you'll start to discover that heaven is on earth. And then you'll also have that assurance of spending an eternity with him because that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Let's pray.